This past week, uh, as, as finals has been kicking off here at Nichols, um, there has been a uh, there's been a uh, a resurgence of a certain practice that I need to address um, because there, as we've been sitting around the cafe and students have been taking uh, their their study breaks here and there, um, there has been one activity that I need to address. I need to be very very stern on and call it out right now. Um, so apologize, if student, if you're not a student, but it's something we have to talk about. Um, as they've been sitting around, I've been seeing decks of cards being handed out. And as these students have been taking study breaks, there's a certain game that has been making its way back into this building called Pedro. All right. Now, if you don't know what Pedro is, Pedro is kind of like spades. It's kind of like hearts. It's kind of like all those things. But it's way better. It's the Cajun game. It's a great game. It's a fun game. The reason why I have to address this is because there are two ways to play Pedro. And the people that know what I'm talking about know what I'm saying, right? There are two ways. There is one way called follow suit, all right? And there's a second way called the wrong way, all right? And if you're from Bayou Terrebonne, you are welcome to leave at any point during this homily because you play Pedro the wrong way. Anyway, um, it's called cutthroat, and that just sounds evil and sounds wrong, right? Like, gross, get out, leave. Anyway, you can go to confession also with the kids after Mass, so... No, the reason why I say that, um, I, I've been, it's a, it's a fun card game. It's, it, you play for points. It's, it's just a really good time. Um, and I've been able to get sucked into a couple of games, and it's a lot of fun. Um, as I've been playing cards, though, I remember uh, when, I was, when I was in college. So I was uh, probably 19, 20 years old, broke college student, coming home for breaks and stuff. Um, I remember there were times that we would go down to uh, the local bar in, in Raceland, and we would go play, a, go play Pedro with my buddies from high school and stuff like that. Um, there was one night that I remember we showed up to go play, and we were going we to play cards, and we were all excited. And it was me and my roommate from college. We were back home. We were catching up with some old friends, playing cards. We show up. We're ready to go. 20 minutes into the night, we had lost out the tournament, and we were like, well, now what are we going to do? My dad was there. He was playing cards with his buddy. And then as we're sitting there, um, these two, this, this other team that got knocked out, they came up to us, and they said, hey, would you like to play a little game on the side for a little cash? And we were like, okay, sure. And I sat down and I didn't realize at the time that I'm a broke college student and I might actually owe money at the end of this. This is not good, right? So, like, I remember we played the game and it might have been like five bucks or whatever it was. I lost. Okay, fine. But there was part of me that I remember when I told, when my dad, in between games, he walked over to the table, he looks at us and he says, what are you doing? And I was like, we're just playing a game. And he was like, for fun? And I'm like, no. And he says, like, I could see it in his eyes. Like, like you, you have no idea, kid, what you're about to do, right? You have no idea what, if you start losing money, like, you don't have money. <laughs> and, and I remember in the back of my mind, I started thinking, I'm like, the only reason why I was comfortable with saying yes to play in this game is because I had an insurance policy, and then the insurance policy's name was Dad, <laughs> right? That if I was, like, in debt, if I had a problem, like, what was going to happen? Dad was going to cover me, and I was going to be fine. I, it, as, I, as I sat with that and thought about that for a while, um, I think it's a really interesting way uh, to kind of think of our, our gospel today and, and just God's action, right? Uh, last week, we, we talked about that Jesus is real, that God is real, that God wants to act and work within the context of our real life, our real stuff. And the hard part for us sometimes is making space for that. The hard part for us sometimes is allowing God into those 
hard places, into those spaces in our life that we might not want Him. It's a lot of times easier to keep Him at a distance, but God is real and He actually wants to work. I think a way for us to think about as we continue in this, uh, in this Advent season and, and, and breaking open these different themes about who Jesus is, I, I think the next one we can pray with and, and, and maybe talk about today is that God is present. God is, God is present to us at all times, everywhere. God is consistently and continually present to us. He promised years and years ago in the, Old, in the Old Testament that He was going to be present, that He was going to pave a way from the moment that Adam and Eve fell, from the moment that they ate the fruit, He knew that He was going to pave a way, but He was going to be present to His people in a powerful and profound way. And our first reading today from the prophet Isaiah, this is, G, this is Isaiah saying that God is going to continue to be present to His people. The, the our, our, our gospel today, what we hear is, is that John the Baptist, he reiterates from the very beginning of his ministry, he reiterates the words of Isaiah, and he says, God is going to be present to his people, and it's coming. It's coming soon. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. And he's coming fast. The thing about, the, the thing about John the Baptist that we have to understand is John the Baptist is there he, he was considered one of the last prophets. He's considered the last prophet. The last and greatest of the prophets. The reason why is, is if we look at what he's doing, he is preaching the coming of Christ. That's all that the prophets did in the Old Testament. They preached the coming of God. The coming of God's action. But what John the Baptist does in this is that John the Baptist, he's, if, you, if we think about some of these different details that we hear about, and there's two particular that stick out. Sure, his wardrobe is interesting with camel's hair, and his diet is interesting with like eating wild honey and locusts and bugs and stuff like that, right? He's kind of a crazy guy. <laughs> but, if, but, but John the Baptist, the two details that are really interesting about him is that he is baptizing people and where he's baptizing people. The reason why it's so interesting is that John the Baptist, when he's doing his ministry, He's out in the wilderness preaching. He's out outside of Jerusalem preaching. What he, the, his presence of being outside of Jerusalem, what it really is, it's a testament to the prophets. It's a testament to, hey, we're not at the promised land yet. You see, the Jewish people thought the promised land was Jerusalem. Well, in the Old Testament, it was Jerusalem, right? And, and the Jewish people, when they were in the, in the, in the wilderness... Their image of the wilderness was the exodus. Their image of the wilderness was walking all through for 40 years through the desert and having a, a column of cloud and fire leading them the way. What John the Baptist is talking about, though, is the wilderness that he is saying. They, they, then at the, end of the, at the end of their travels, right, where do they end up? They end up in Jerusalem. They end up going through the Jordan River into Jerusalem. And they get their promised land. What John the Baptist is doing, though, by going into the wilderness, he is saying, hey, we're not arrived yet. There's more fulfillment to this covenant coming. And Jesus is it. So prepare the way of the Lord. Our pilgrimage is not over. We haven't experienced the real promised land just yet. 
And then where is he baptizing people? In the Jordan River. In Jerusalem, there were baths that, that were like ceremonial baths. Like there was a natural spring that kind of went through underneath the city. They, they would, what, what happened is, is that, that people were unclean before they would walk into the, the temple to offer sacrifice or to pray. They had to go and they had to bathe. Like they had to literally clean themselves. John the Baptist is in a ditch outside of the, outside of the, of the city. The water is not as clean as the water in the city, y'all. When he's out baptizing, when he's out ritually cleaning people in this water, it's because the water, the place, is, is important. Because where is it that they passed through to enter into Jerusalem? It was through the Jordan River. Everything John the Baptist does was prophetic. Every, the places that he chose was prophetic. What he's bringing about is, is John the Baptist is saying that there is a new exodus that's taking place. That this, this traveling that we did in the Old Testament, this traveling that we heard of our ancestors doing, it's not done yet. And that the coming Messiah, He's going to fulfill it. We know the story. We know what happens. We know that God, Emmanuel, right, God with us, that God stepped down into the world and became one of us. That God saw it so fit to save His people that He became, he became one of His people. Because Jesus is present to us. Jesus is present. Jesus is real. God is real. And today, we have the promise that God is going to become present to His people. Why? Why would He do that? I mean, in reality, why would God waste His time? Because <laughs> I don't know if you, I don't know if you watch the news, but. It, it, I, don't, I don't see much hope there, right? I don't know if you watched a debate in the last couple of weeks, but I really don't see a lot of hope there, right? Why would God see it so fit to step down into our condition, into our world, into our life to be present to us? It seems foolish. It's because, and this is the this is the uh, the kicker of a word. It's the it's the stereotypical word. It's the it's the trope. It's whatever you want to call it. it it's very simple. It's because he loves us, y'all. God has this unbelievable love and desire for you, right where you are. God has this unbelievable love and desire for you. Whether you're asking questions about what His will is for you, whether you're up to your wits in with finals, whether you're like struggling just to kind of keep things on track in your family, if a job is aggravating, if your family's going nuts, if, if, what, if you've experienced sickness or death or hurt or pain or whatever it is in your life, God is absolutely in love with you. So much so that He's willing to step down from heaven to you every day and be present 
There's a story um, that I've shared before, but it, it made its rounds a couple years ago, and I think it's really fitting to this point. Um, in 1989, there was, a, uh, there was an earthquake uh, in Armenia, so 8.2 on the Richter scale. Now, if you don't know 8.2 on the Richter scale, um, it, it flattens everything, right? Like the, 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 the area that this earthquake hit, destroyed, gone, flattened. Um, it's estimated that in about four minutes, 30,000 people lost their life. Well, in this area, in this city, um, there was a man named Samuel, and he had a son named Ormond. Um, and every day, he, what he would do is he would bring his son over to school, and he would drop his kid off at school, and when he would drop him off, he would look at him and say, buddy, if you ever need me, I'll be there, and give him a big hug, and I love you, and love you too, Dad, and kiss, and take off, go on about his day. Well, this morning, when he drops his son off, he leaves, and a couple hours later is when, when, when the earthquake hit. And he sees that he and his wife are fine at his home, and okay, everything's okay. And, and immediately, the first thing that comes to his mind is he says, Armand. So he runs to, to the school. He runs back to, to the school. And when he gets there, he sees a couple of stories of just rubble that had fallen in on itself. And he was shocked. Starts to break down to cry. And the only thing that starts to play in his mind is dig. So he runs up to the rubble and he just starts moving. He just starts moving whatever he can, right? Small rocks, big rocks, whatever it is, he's moving stuff. And as, as he's digging, as he's going, going through this process of just trying to like burrow through all of this rubble and all of this concrete, what happens is, is People are, other people are starting to show up, right? So family members of the, of the other kids in the school or, um, or, or some, some police and firefighters and like first responders, they're all starting to show up. And this man just is digging. And as people do, they either see him and they like rebuke him. They aggravated at him. They're like, what are you doing? Like, it's hopeless. And he's like, you can sit there and complain or you can help me dig. Like, but I'm, I'm moving. And as he's digging and, and, and these, some of these other people are joining in to dig and then help and, some are crying, some are not. Three, four, five hours goes by, he's still digging, bare hands, nothing else, right? Cramping, sore, scraping up his hands, blood, whatever. He's just going, going, going. Nine, ten, eleven hours later, he's still going. He's still going, other people are falling off. People are taking shifts and he's not stopping. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hours, he's still digging and the whole time, the only thing in his mind that is pushing him through is saying his son's name under his breath. Armand, 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 continues to dig, continues to pull back concrete and steel and rebar and all these things. At 38 hours, a day and a half from when he arrived, the man's spirit starts to shake. He starts to think, I'm going to quit. <laughs> he did not stop. He kept going. Still saying, Armand, Armand. And at one point, he pulls back a piece of concrete, throws it off the pile, still saying, Armand. And he sees his son's face looking up at him and says, Papa? Fourteen of the 33 kids in his son's class had survived. And when he did, when he did see his son, he looked, his son looks back at the other kids in the class and says, I told you my dad was coming. 
We have a God who is present. We have a God who will go to the ends of the earth to make sure that you are saved and are loved. We have a God that loves you so much that he would step down from heaven to here to be a baby so that you would have a chance at eternal life. The new exodus that St. That John the Baptist was talking about is an exodus of forgiveness of sins that gives us hope of eternal life. We have a God who is willing to be present with us every step of the way. He reaffirms that presence today in our, in our Mass. He reaffirms that promise today in our Mass when He steps down from heaven to you under the veil of bread and wine. May today as we come to this Mass, we not take for granted the gift that God has for us. We not take for granted the, the, the distance that He's willing to go the crazy, un unbelievable love that He has for us. I think sometimes it's easy where, where we, can almost, we, can almost be, we, we can almost be desensitized, right, to, to Jesus' coming in the Eucharist. But today as we come to Mass, let's, do, let's receive Him anew. That we have a God that's willing to step so far a distance to meet you, to be present. God is real for us. And God is present. May today we receive His real presence.